This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Kelsey Grammer. The audition ends, no one laughs. What are you thinking? His Dr. Fraser Crane character was one of the longest running on television, appearing first on the hugely successful show Cheers, and then starring in the spin-off series, Frasier. Kind of come up with ways to stay um, fresh or, or unpredictable, spontaneous. During our 2019 interview at his home in the Catskill Mountains, the five-time Emmy Award winner reflects on the role his TV dad played in his life. I got an understanding of what it might be like to have had a father, and that was a great, great thing. And opens up about the tragic murder of his young sister. Certainly a big brother, always wants to protect his sister, so losing her in that way was really uh, damning to me. Grammer also shares what he's learned from his relationship struggles. I think some of it had to do with always picking people that you could never satisfy. And relives the religious experience he had while surfing. Just like I vanished into this place that was beyond the sun. If this is what dying is, if this is where heaven is, I'm good. All that's coming up next on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. A lot of people might not know that once upon a time you were a big surfer. Um, Surf, yeah, so surfing was my life really, really when I was uh, junior high and high school. The first, oh boy, the first month of that is pretty hellish. Just, you know, just paddling out really knocks you out, basically. Uh, and then, uh, then you kind of get in shape. And I, I say to everybody, if you, can, if you can surf every day for six months to begin, then you become a surfer. That's all. It's just like playing the piano. It's like any, anything else, any other skill you acquire, you just have to keep going. and you know, and, and slowly graduate up to bigger waves and stuff like that on, on the good days. Coco used to have some great, great waves, great breaks. And then uh, uh, I, I surfed up as high as uh, Matunic, Rhode Island. They had great lefts there. And, uh, and that, was, that was the coldest I've ever been in my life. I was surfing no, in Narragansett once. I didn't like wetsuits. I clearly turned blue in, uh, in Rhode Island in the spring. <laughs> you made a big time commitment, though, to it as well. I mean, you were surfing Every day for about seven and, years, and I, I day, surfed, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you enjoy about it? Oh, just that harmony. You know, just that oneness with nature, God, all that stuff. You feel it all in those moments. And uh, when you're just, when it's a great day surfing and you drop into a, a terrific wave, there's really nothing quite like it. Uh, I, there were moments I thought I sort of just disappeared, like sort of became one with nature and and whatever it is, you know, the oversoul, uh, all the corny talk you hear about, you know, kids that live in that world. Uh, uh, that's what it was like for me. What would you think about when you were out there? Where's the next wave coming from? Okay. You know, pretty much uh, it, it would help you to filter out almost everything. And I guess it's sort of like meditation in a strange way, you know, bit by bit the layers of, of your life drop off and you finally become sort of in tune with the moment. And that's, that's what happens in surfing. I mean, you are completely in tune with the moment. And I guess that's kind of perfection. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had what you called your most religious experience out on a surfing. surfboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where I sort of stepped off the planet, I thought it was, uh, it was an amazing thing. Uh, it was a particularly hot day. I was, I was surfing in Palm Springs. Uh, I mean, I'm in Palm Beach, and uh, it was a, a big wind wind break that day. It was all kicked up by a little storm that was off the coast, and uh, there was it was choppy and kind of radical. But you could drop into a wave once in a while, and suddenly I hit one. It was fantastic, and I was going left. I was going left, and I looked up through the wave as it kind of, kind of sort of peaked above my head, and I caught the sun through through the wave. 
And I saw it, and then right at that moment, I just went, like it just, like I vanished into this place that was beyond the sun. And you know, I thought I saw the angels all around me. And, and, and I thought, boy, if this, is, if this is what dying is, if this is where heaven is, I'm good. You know, this is all an all-powerful, all sort of connected moment in my life. So that was, yeah, that was the top of the line. Uh, emotional experience? Uh, emotional to the point of just um, peace. Uh, of sort of ecstatic. So speaking about being out on the water, uh, how did you get into sailing? Sailing, I learned to sail when I was uh, nine years old uh, in Atlantic Islands, New Jersey, at the Atlantic Islands Yacht Club. They gave a summer course on boats they called Blue Jays. And uh, I and my good buddy Doug, we're still friends, we see each other all the time, took a sailing class with a fellow named Skip Brennan. and. Uh, he just instilled at us, oh, this is, this is what it is, you know. Um, we learned basic knot tying and, and, uh, and how to uh, trim a sail and understand what the, the dynamics of it were, you know, the physics of it, the Bernoulli principle, all that stuff, because the sail is like a foil. And, uh, but I fell in love with that then. And one of my big dreams as a kid was to buy a sailboat one day. It didn't happen until I was 29. So I went to Bank of America and I took a dollar for dollar loan. So the first time I paid off anything was this sailboat. And uh, that's how I established credit. <laughs> uh, or a crash course in Yeah, yeah, finance. exactly, in finance. So I, I bought this boat that way and then I had it until uh, nine years ago. So I had it for about 30 years. And uh, it's a great story. My, my wife, uh, Kate, um, I said, you gotta go out on my boat. Because I, mean, I, I used to sail twice a week. I used to go out, like, as soon as rehearsal was over, I'd grab my buddy John and I'd say, let's go. Let's go out. You know, we'd sail for a few hours and we'd buy some lamb chops, barbecue them on the, on the little uh, sort of marine Weber that you just uh, put up on a stanchion. And uh, it was ideal. It was a wonderful time. And uh, so uh, Kate, <laughs> I, I take her down to the boat and I slide open the hatch and I climb down the ladder. I'm standing here by the galley and she says, uh, have you ever had sex on this boat? <laughs> I just was frozen. I thought, oh, hell. And I wasn't looking at her. <laughs> I thought, so I, I raced through about 20, 20 like, lies I could tell <laughs> as fast as my brain could function. And uh, I just turned around and said, yes. And she said, well, I'm not going out on it. <laughs> so I said, oh, how could you? But. Uh, <laughs> So I donated the boat you donated to a sailing school. And uh, I actually, I, it, the boat was actually worth more when I, uh, when I donated it than it was when I, when I bought it originally. So that was actually a real success story. Motorcycles, uh, how'd you get into biking? Motorcycles started when I was uh, 13, I guess, maybe, maybe 12. Uh, a buddy of mine had a little Honda 90 and uh, we rode it around uh, my neighborhood. You know, we had a, there was a field across the street from my neighborhood that was uh, from our house that uh, we would make little trails through and, you know, run into a tree once in a while. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so that's how we learned. We got scuffed up. And so then it graduated to street bikes. And that was actually sort of the birth of the big super bikes that started right around then in the early 70s. And you biked cross country on many occasions. Uh, uh, how about uh, best memory? Three times uh, I crossed the country uh, on a motorcycle. 
there are varied experiences on, on, each, on each of the crossings, but uh, the most sort of pivotal one was the first one, which was to go get a job. My first acting job was in San Diego, California. I got the job in New York. My motorcycle was in Florida. So I called my grandmother and said, uh, I have good news. And she said, what, you finally got a job? I said, yes. And I said, I have to drive my motorcycle there. I don't have the money to get on a plane. I think it was $29 then to get on a, I think it was run by Eastern, what they called the Yellow Bird, uh, was a 727. And uh, it was a cheap flight one way to Lauderdale. So I went over to LaGuardia, got on the plane that my grandmother said, okay, I'll buy you the ticket. So I got there, I had 50 bucks in my pocket. I got a new chain for my motorcycle and tuned it up and got on it the next day. Drove to Tallahassee, Florida, met with a buddy of mine in Tallahassee, which is a big drive from Lauderdale. It's like, you know, 300, maybe 400 miles. Uh, and uh, we had dinner that night, we hung out. Uh, I started my journey across country. I made Houston the next day. Uh, that was a pretty big drive. Got hit by lightning halfway there. I was, was going to say, is, tell, tell about getting struck the, by this lightning. This is the lightning story, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you if you drive a long distance on a motorcycle, you know you're going to get wet. That's just sort of what happens. And you know, I'm just a bit of an idiot, Yahoo. You know, semi still almost a teenager, and uh, so I just knew. You know, I'm driving into a thunderstorm, and I said, I got to make Houston anyway, so I got to keep going. And I don't really have a set of you know wet gear and all that stuff that some of the guys have now. Uh, so it gets pretty intense. I'm getting beat up a little bit. I'm doing still 80 miles an hour, you know, in a pouring thunderstorm. So you're getting, you're really getting pummeled. And then I felt a, a, a jolt through my system and thought, holy that, that must have been like lightning. It had to be. And I thought, well, but I'm grounded, you know, because I got my rubber, the, the, the rubber, the tires grounded me, so I'm safe. I realized that it, I probably just conducted a, a lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I took it as a good sign, as a, like it was an omen that I was starting a new life. What do you remember from reading your first Shakespeare play in seventh grade? Right, well, that was after Gordon died, and so I was pretty emotional about what was going on in my life then. It was right after, and then and this, this play called Julius Caesar was the first one we read in seventh grade. And uh, there was this character, Brutus, who uh, was um, philosophically uh, unmoved by emotion, who thought stoicism was the right way to go. You know, you, you make decisions based upon facts and you don't get, let your emotions carry you away. I, th I thought that was a great philosophy. And it, it crafted what I, I started to do after that because I, I could have kind of fallen apart because uh, I really relied on my granddad. And then I thought, I, I'm the only guy left in the family. I have to be strong for the, the women in the, in the household, my grandmother, mother, and sister. And uh, so I tried to just be a strong man. Uh, and it, it changed my focus on a lot of things about how to take things in stride, try to keep them in perspective a little bit and not allow them to change you or turn you into an idiot. You know, and so I, I tried. I've been a bit of an idiot sometimes in my life, but. <laughs> Your book that you wrote many years back so far it was great, and, and you were so open, and you um, talked about being there for your uh, mom, sister, right, and grandma, yeah. which just seemed like a Herculean undertaking. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, like, reading Shakespeare for the first time, seventh grade. Um, what was it about uh, 
getting kicked out of Juilliard and what your uh, teacher said to you oh. that really reinforced uh, reading those works as something of importance. Right, right. Uh, when I was thrown out of Juilliard, which was, uh, I was uh, 20? Yeah, I think I was 20 years old. And uh, he said, is there anything you'd like me, like me, is there anything you want to ask me? I said, well, yeah, what, what do we, what do I do from here? You know, what's the best thing? He said, well, you know, and this was John Hausman at the time, who was kind of a, a famous uh, professor at that time. Uh, he said, uh, read the great novels. Said, uh, because if you, if you do that and you dedicate yourself to that, you get information that becomes part of you. You know, if you, if you dive into a novel, you know, like one of the great novels, you actually kind of live through those moments with those people. So suddenly you're living through, uh, like in War and Peace, the, the war with Napoleon. And suddenly you're one of those guys and you have all this information about what it's like. And uh, you'd never have that anywhere else, not in your own life experience. And uh, the best equipment you have to be a good actor is, is that you have human experience at your fingertips. And so the more you can gather, the more you can harvest from great uh, storytelling, uh, the more you can filter into what your career hopefully will be. You once produced and hosted a Jack Benny tribute. Yes. <laughs> uh, what was it about what the legendary actor said on Johnny Carson that really stuck with you? I was uh, 17. And I, I was acting at that time. I finally was, had become an actor. You know, I was at least interested in it. And uh, Johnny Carson asked uh, Jack Benny what his key to success was. And Jack said, I always play up to the audience. I always play up to my audience. And uh, I thought, boy, that is, that's exactly right. Never assume an audience is dumber than you are or that they're stupid or they won't get it. Always play up to them. Always think that they will know. And if you trust that, they always do. I mean, audiences are always miles ahead of us. You know, they, they always know everything. People are much smarter than we give them credit for. I, I love people and I love their brains and I think they're all smart and I think everybody gets it. And so that's, that became sort of the, the rallying uh, point for me in terms of the way I wanted to do work. I always thought, never wait for the audience, never play down to the audience, never think they're not gonna be with you. Always assume they'll be ahead of you. And uh, that changed everything I did. How do you get to the point where um, you can walk into a room performing, not say anything, not move, be staring at the audience, and for the audience to be laughing with you because they know exactly what you're thinking? I think that, that comes from actually understanding that we all have an intellect that connects us. You know, and, that, and once they recognize the character, once, once they know the situation enough, um, They'll, they'll respond to a look or a raised eyebrow or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's one of the heady moments when you realize, you know, you're in the pocket, <laughs> that things are going well. What does that feel like? Um, it just feels, uh, it's, well, it's a little bit like heaven. Really? I mean, you know, because you're just, you're just connected to, to other human beings. And I think that a great deal of what we're here for is to make that connection. You know, is to, is to live with other human beings, to, to elevate your experience based upon the connection you make with other people. And uh, that is one of the greatest. You learn your lines, though, apparently only moments before oh, then, you, well, you go in, out. In certain, in certain circumstances, I do. Um, in television, for instance, if you have been playing a part for a long time, which arguably Frazier was a, a, you know, a, a good distance, uh, a good amount of time. Um, Not just a good amount of time, well, yeah, one of the longest years. amount of times. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty right. good. Um, 
But if you have that, then you have to kind of come up with ways to stay um, fresh or, or unpredictable. Um, I'm trying to think of spontaneous. And so it, it, for me, it was like an exercise. I don't want to learn my lines. I sort of know what I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll learn them just before I go on so that it looks like I'm looking for the words, which is what we really do anyway. And uh, so it was, a, it was an affectation, really. It was like a, uh, it was like a, um, a trick that helped me to stay fresh, to look real. So you went to Juilliard on scholarship, mm -hmm. um, yet you still had to take two jobs to daily, I, I think, to make ends meet. Yeah, yeah. There's, well, what I did was uh, the summer before I took two jobs, uh, so I'd have enough cash to kind of get through the year. And uh, that was the um, when I was a night man at a hotel, and I did work on a construction site in the daytime. And I actually used to run from one or the other. Uh, after, after, after the job would close at 6 a.m. Uh, at the hotel, I would run over and, and start work on the construction site. What were the hours? Uh, that was 7 to 3, basically. And then uh, it was 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. on the, uh, and I would do the laundry a lot of the time on the, on the hotel one. And uh, rake the beach, uh, brush the tennis courts, uh, clean the tile in the swimming pool, <laughs> just stuff like that. I, was, I, I liked work. How much money? I ended up with 700 going. bucks by the end of the summer. Uh, and it got me through, it got me through till the spring the next year. Well, I mean, yes, but you had to be creative. Well, very what creative. led you to sleeping in the park? Uh, well, that was because it was still warm enough I could actually sleep there for, for just only a few weeks, really. But I could sneak behind a certain bush and cover myself with a newspaper, and I was fine. I, and I showered over at Juilliard. What, what do you remember from that? I mean, Nothing. you were, no, you were safe. sleeping in the park, though. <clears throat> it was completely safe. Right. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd been camping when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, that's a it little wasn't really much different than that. I mean, well, it really wasn't. <laughs> I mean, people you know, don't camp in the nobody park was really in around. New York you didn't City. see anybody, so it was all right. You know, I I never had any real experiences there. I had to, uh, you know, one one time we got, I took the train too far on uh, the Independent Line. I ended up in Harlem, and, and some guy looked at me. It was like 3 a.m. I'm standing there on one side of the track, and he looks over like this. He goes, "Hope you make it home." <laughs> you know, oh hell, but. Uh, like, you know what, I've, whatever it was, there was always something uh, that kept me safe. What do you think going through that period, though, uh, taught you about money and savings? Well, it, it taught me to be pretty frugal, you know, and uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a spendthrift if, uh, in, in, my, in my heart. I think that, you know, should, you should live beyond your means a little bit. You should take risks like, you know, <laughs> build a brewery. <laughs> uh, you know, money's made to be spent a little bit. You're supposed to actually be in the game, you know, put it to good work, to good use, but you also should be smart about how, how far you overextend. You know, I mean, everybody overextends a little bit, but, um, yeah, I try to keep it um, within reason. How did you figure out that balance early on, though, when, you uh, know, when Well, early started? on it was simpler because, you know, you just didn't, you know, you just knew you couldn't, couldn't do that, you know. But so, and I was always wanting to sacrifice my body for the sake of survival, which meant, you know, I'll, I'll sleep in the elements, I'll, <laughs> I won't get an apartment, right. I'll uh, drive a motorcycle instead of get a car, you know, stuff like that. There was always a, a, low, a way of shaving uh, the, the budget to a point where you could survive and, and still feel like you were, you know, thriving. Because uh, I always felt rich. I always felt like I was doing great. I mean, if I could buy, buy a quarter pound of salami and uh, 
and a hard role, I was, I was a happy guy. So there was a period in which during your early acting days where you auditioned something like 100 times over four months. 100 and, auditions, yeah. And, and what, what made you realize um, that if you really wanted to be an actor, you had to give up the waiting job? Oh, that, that was interesting. Now, I'd, I'd had some success in acting by then. I mean, at least I'd had a couple of jobs. I, I worked in San Diego for almost two and a half years, uh, three seasons three summer seasons, and I stayed through the winter and did some shows then. I ended up doing maybe 13 plays during that amount of time, which was, you know, just great. Uh, and I went back to New York and did a job in, um, oh, did a job off-Broadway for, you know, what was Subway Fare. That was one of the big things we'd get, which was 75 cents at the time. Uh, and did a couple of other plays, like readings and stuff like that. But And then I, I one day walked into work uh, where I was working at O'Neill's on 57th Street and 6th Avenue, and uh, which is now the Rue to something or other. It's still there. The restaurant's still there. Uh, and I suddenly thought, you know what? You're not going to be an actor in, as long as you're a waiter. And that's when I said to the guy, I said, you know, i got to quit. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, it's just time. And his name was Michael, I remember, he was a nice, nice guy. And he said, well, okay, you know, it sounds crazy to me, but okay. And I got a job the next day, and I was an actor ever since. Christopher Plummer, uh, the Wednesday matinee Yeah, very play. challenging, very challenging. Um, what did you say and what did you do? Well, this is... It's a good story. It's a fun story. I, it's, uh, I really like Chris, so and it's like it, it, it took us a while. Acting. Football acting, because you know, uh, Chris would just throw you around if you if if you couldn't keep up with him, he'd throw you around. And you know, I mean, more power to him. I I, uh, I celebrate him now because he actually. I was at a point in my life when I thought, boy, maybe I did, maybe this isn't for me, and and maybe that was partially working with Chris. I don't know, but I I'd finally gotten fed up. I'd realized that I broke my foot several months previous because I had ended up too far stage left. I didn't get to my light. Um, Chris had pulled me around really hard and I broke my foot and I thought and I heard a crack you know I thought what the hell is that so the same set of circumstances occurred on this particular matinee day and I suddenly like all this rage came up in me and I grabbed a hold of him and I threw him as hard as I could sort of you know sort of ended up off stage and I, I did whisper something in his ear <laughs> that wasn't particularly pleasant we can believe it well yeah, I just you and tossed him <laughs> and like really and, tossed him. Oh, I really tossed him, yeah. And then he came storming back out on stage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and started to just gave me that look. And I thought, well, this is it. I'm fired now. This is fine. And uh, But what was weird was from that time on, we had the best time. It was just, he just needed to know he wasn't going to, you know, get away with the stuff he usually got away with anymore. And it, it, it turned out to be a great experience. And... Uh, I credit him with a lot. Christian Slater's mom's responsible for getting you one of your early yes, soap yeah, opera yeah. gigs. Uh, um, Mary Jo Slater was, uh, became a pal. Um, I arrived from San Diego with my girlfriend then, Ellen, who was uh, doing, um, she, was, she had an audition for One Life to Live. And uh, I just came along with her. And uh, <laughs> drove her nuts because, it, so Slater's sitting there and, um, I walk in with Ellen. She checks in, says, Ellen Toby, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I said, uh, oh, 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 I remember, yeah. Mary Jo just looked up and looked at me and said, who are you? 
I could just see Ellen going like, <sighs> and she said, uh, you're, you're cute. It was nice. I was cute then. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the case anymore. But um, so she said, why don't you sit down? Give me a minute. I'm going to take So She took a couple of girls in and did, did their auditions. And, and I, I was sat there for about maybe 45 minutes. And she said, come on in. So she, she walked me in. She said, you're an actor. I said, yeah, yeah. And she said, you, do you have an agent? I said, no, I just got the town. She said, do you want one? Sure. So she got on the phone and called Jeff Hunter, who was a big agent. And uh, I'm sending over a kid. We're going to test him for this role, blah, 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 blah. And uh, uh, you, should, you should sign him. And that's a big that deal. Was, that's that was huge. That I mean, it's just, uh, it was just extraordinary. Right. No, I did not end up getting that part. But but, so, uh, but I did test for it, and that was that was pretty cool. And you got a babysitting gig of the young Christian Slater. Oh, I used to babysit it, for Christian. Yeah, yeah. Slater and I became friends. I called her Slater always. Um, I, I been, we still you know connect once in a while. Uh, great gal. Take me through the meeting you had with George Lucas. The George Lucas thing was pretty funny because uh, there's a great backstory to it. This was the day, the day I got kicked out of Juilliard. There was one of the teachers there. Uh, Edith Skinner was her name. She basically created the speech for the American theater, uh, an extraordinary person. And uh, she walked up to me and she said, Kelsey, I know you've had trouble. And she said, uh, you have Caruso equipment, and I think you'll have a great future. So I thought, oh, well, that's great. She said, I think you need to, you should meet this man, this agent. Uh, Mort Schwartz was his name. And so she gave me the number. I called and said, and he said, yeah, come on over. So I, I walk over to this, this place. This was a couple of days after I've been kicked out. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, this, is a, this is why I, he had a Dutch door. There was a secretary here who sort of was, you know, fighting. And, and Mort was in the back in his office. And the, the top part was open. And he's going, uh, listen, Greg, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And blah, blah, blah. And he calls, he goes, and, and, and he looks at me. He goes, it's Gregory Peck. And he says, uh, you, who are you? And I said, uh, Kelsey Grammer, Edith Skinner told me to come over. I said, oh, yeah, okay, come on in, come on in. She said, Sonny looks at me, he goes, yeah, okay, uh, what happened at school? He said, ah, you know, I said, well, I, I got kicked out. Um, so why do you think that happened? I said, well, I wasn't going to acting class, <laughs> so, which was the case. So um, he looked at me for a second, he said, you know what? He takes out a pencil, a piece of paper on a pad, Right, so this thing, go to this address. There's a guy there casting a movie about space. <laughs> and he hands me the thing. It's about three blocks away. I walk around, I knock on the door, and sure enough, they call me in, and I, I sit down, and there's, I didn't know at the time, George Lucas. And uh, he says, well, we're making this thing about, um, it's a fairy tale in space. You know, two guys rescue a princess. Uh, great, sounds like fun. Um, so he said, you know, you're right for, there's these two parts, it's, well, well maybe, maybe the older guy, you look a little older than, uh, he's, you know, like, he's kind of a, you know, gunslinging kind of guy, you know, an adventurer. Uh, cool, you know, great, huh? yeah, sounds good to me. Well, I never heard back from him or anything, but uh, about a year and a half later, I was doing a job in San Diego. I got my first job, I was in San Diego, then I went and saw this movie where the, the you know, the, then that ship goes over over your head, and then, then you see the, the the jet or the engines, and um, I, I'm watching it a little bit longer, and I'm thinking, holy.
this is that movie. This is that thing the guy told me about. It's it's them. It's it's. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> so, well, you know, I either dodged a bullet or uh, missed a really big opportunity. <laughs> so, but you know what? Harrison Ford did really well in that. Yeah. And I'm a big fan. So. Oh, and the big opportunity was uh, coming up. You audition for Cheers. The yeah. audition ends. No one laughs. What are you thinking? Yeah, that was a <clears throat> that was a. a, a, a Strange experience because I ended up uh, at the end of the audition in California. Uh, there's a room full of people, not one laugh. And so I put the, the script down and I said, you know what, I'm going to go out on the street, see if I can get some laughs out there. And I turned around and I left. And uh, I called my old pal Lois and said, let's, let's go take a drive. Let's go down to San Diego because I'd, I'd known her from San Diego. We went and spent the weekend. and. Uh, I got back on Monday to, you know, collect my things and then head off to the airport. And as I walked into the old Holiday Inn there, that was at Hollywood and Vine, uh, where I think the the big theater is now, the Kodak Theater, whatever the, whatever it's called now. Um, they said uh, there's some messages for you, and uh, people have been trying to get a hold of you all this time. And uh, I walked into my little hotel room. And there was a, a bottle of Dom Perignon sitting on the table. I went and opened it up and it said, welcome to Cheers. So, <laughs> How cool was that? It was really cool. <laughs> Describe the emotion of driving up to the Paramount lot for the, the first oh, time. Oh, the first time I drove into Paramount was great. I mean, it's, uh, I said, it's Kelsey Grammer. I said, oh, yeah, hey, hey, good to see you. Yeah, come on in, here's your parking space. Blah, 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 blah. That was very cool. Because the gates, you know, I mean, you know, Hollywood still, it has a sort of, you know, mythology about it. It's kind of a, um, a size about it that makes it really cool to kind of, you know, finally walk through one of those gates and, and be welcomed. That was a nice thing. And Cheers, obviously, one of the most successful shows in TV history. Frasier, the spinoff, one of the most successful spinoffs in uh, television history. You actually end up directing more than 30 episodes mm -hmm. of uh, Frasier yourself. But the show centered around, uh, you know, an older father and kind right. of a, a misunderstood relationship with his uh, grown son. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You said uh, the greatest gift you got from Frazier was understanding what it was like to have a father yeah, and brother. Yeah, a father, a relationship with a father. Yeah. Uh, was, how uh, so? Well, my granddad had really sort of taken the place of my father. I didn't know my dad very well. My dad died when I was 14, just a couple years after Gordon, but I didn't, even, didn't really even know him. Um, after Gordon died, uh, my dad sent a note and said, you know, listen, why don't you come and visit me? Come and say hi. So I got to know him a little bit. Spent about three weeks in St. Thomas uh, with my sister, and we got to know my dad a little bit. Uh, and then uh, saw him one more time after that, and he was dead. So that was a strange experience. So I never really had a dad, you know, and I had no real sort of understanding of how to be a dad myself either, which um, has come into play in my life since then. But uh, um, what I got with John and, um, and with David Hyde Pierce, John Mahoney playing my dad, was uh, by virtue of the time we spent together, the 11 years we spent together, uh, I got an understanding of what it might be like to have had a, a father. And that was a great, great thing. And I've had a brother, you know, that went through the things we, we go through, you know, in life together. And you know the rivalries and the, and the love and the commitment and the, and the loyalty. And, I mean things that were you know we, we were 
we were playing characters in a world where they were virtuous people. They were, you know, they had pitfalls and flaws, but they were basically virtuous. And that, that was, so it's a slightly idealized version of what a father and a son and a brother might experience together, but I think it's actually uh, a pretty good slice of, of what would be right in life. How true is it that at times it would take you days to get through family scenes without breaking down yourself? Oh, it still happens to me. I, I cry all the time, cry at the drop of a hat. I've, I don't uh, know why. Uh, just, about what in uh, those situations? I don't know. It just has something that reminds me of the beauty of being a human being, you know, the, the beauty of experience, the beauty of love, the beauty of family, uh, things that are poignant and, and uh, would bring a tear to your eye anyway. Just I'm always there, you know, I'm, I, take the, I take the ride along with the character. And, and so I'll, I'll bubble up and oh my god yeah you know? in what ways did you feel like you said this that your tv father on frazier was almost like a father figure to you yeah my tv dad was just a remarkable guy you know a guy of sacrifice and and, and service and uh and loyalty again like that you know the virtues the, the basic virtues of what you'd look for in a man you know in the, in the traditional sense of a good man you know one that's honest true loyal noble keeps his word stuff like that uh, and and the caring between the three the three men on that show was uh, you know there was an honest uh, sort of uncovered uh, connection that is possible between men that we don't talk about a lot you know with a lot, a lot of villainizing about being you know what they, what they taught, toxic masculinity I I don't know what do you think you learned from your grandpa growing up Gordon was a good man he was a good man he was a man of service the same kind of thing he you know he was a military guy. Reluctantly a military guy. I mean, he was a retired colonel, but I mean, he served in World War II. He was in Guadalcanal for, you know, more than a couple of years. And uh, he, he put his money where his mouth was. And he was fair and honest with people and uh, believed that you should be. He thought that lying was not, you know, a good, a good path. But I think, I think in some ways he thought you didn't always have to tell people the bald-faced truth about things or what you felt about them personally. It wasn't necessary, you know. He passed away when you were 12 years old uh, of cancer. Um, I, I think unbeknownst to you, it had Yeah, no, we had no idea, yeah. Um, body, and even if it's uh, untrue, you had the realization at the time that you would always be alone. Um, why did you feel that, that way was, um, the boy, Kelsey, you know, Talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> uh, I hadn't really let the impact of losing him uh, touch me for about six weeks. And, the, and then that one night, uh, I just sensed that it, uh, I was always going to be alone, that people would always leave, that it wasn't going to be uh, an easy thing, life. You know, and that was a, that was a remarkably desolate moment in my life, um, sad, sort of abandoned. Uh, and it, it energized me in a strange way to think that at the end of that particular realization that I, I would be okay anyway, that I was gonna survive. But um, yeah, that was, a, that was a hard night. That's the first time I cried over my granddad. What do you remember from the three weeks you spent with your dad in St. Thomas after the Oh, playing the drums. Passing? You know, I played, the, the drums? I played the drums with this band. He had a, my dad was a music teacher who had, uh, he'd been in the, he'd been a, he played the bugle in, uh, in the army. Um, and I, I, I'm told he played taps at, uh, at Arlington. Uh, 
but he had this band with four or five other guys. And uh, the, the night that I went to listen to band practice, the drummer was not there. So he asked me to do the drums for 12 bells at midnight. So I, I, I was counting and I, you know, I knew enough about measures and music so I could, I could count it out. And he did, after I hit the 12th one, he said, you're the first guy ever did that right. <laughs> so that was a big thing. We woke up one night in the middle of the night and uh, he threw together some tacos out of the fridge. And that was, a, that was a great moment. We just sat and ate together. And he asked me to edit his magazine. He, he also published a magazine. He asked me to proofread uh, a few of the articles when I was there. And it's a controversial magazine, too. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, Morris Island View, yeah. yeah he, was a, he was a controversial guy. He called things as, as he saw them. Um, my, my grandmother used to tell the story of the day I was born, she flew down. And she said from the airport to the hospital, he got in three fist fights. <laughs> He was a sort of a bigger-than-life guy. Uh, we flew into Puerto Rico, and uh, the uh, stewardess took us, you know, to a, like a little holding room near the near the um, uh, luggage place. And they said, "Who's picking you up? You know, your kids. You can't just be released into you know San Juan." Uh, so uh, I said, "Well, he looks like uh, Blackbeard the pirate." That's all I really knew. <laughs> and, been uh, since yeah, I had no recollection of him. And uh, but my mom said he looks like Blackbeard the pirate, so I, I quoted that, and uh, they sort of <laughs> laughed. And then down at the end of this hangar, I mean, with the end of the airport, which looked like an old hangar, I don't know what it is now. Um, there's this giant guy standing there, and uh, with a big black beard, <laughs> and he weighed about 350 at the time. And I thought, holy crap, that's my dad. He's right there. <laughs> and I said, I think it's him. And they all turned and sort of giggled. He looked just like Blackbeard the Pirate. <laughs> so he used to play it in um, the, the carnival every year on, on the island. So. And you've been very open about this. He was murdered. Um, yeah. Why was it not till you turned the age that he passed that it really sunk right. in for you? Uh, I had some... Uh, I had a pretty tempestuous relationship at the time, and uh, on, on one particular night, uh, things got pretty dramatic, and so uh, I'm not gonna say anything else about it, except that a certain event took place on that particular night with this particular woman in my life that made me think, holy crap, my dad was so young when he died, because uh, I was 38, and it was the first time it, it hit me how young he was to have died at that age, because to me, you know, it was such a sort of a distant memory uh, I was 14, and 38 seemed like a lot then to me, you know, at that time. But in, in getting to that space, I suddenly thought, you know, what a loss for him. You know, I mean, the, the people that have died in my life, and, you know, there have been a few. Um, I, it always seems to me like it's their tragedy, you know, and it's not really mine. It's uh, that loss of what he might have done with his own life, of what he, what it, possibly the relationship we could have had, but that really wasn't what it was about. It was about this poor young man that was taken before his time. Your sister similarly yeah. uh, murdered. Um, you said it took kind of 20 years for you to overcome Process or get to a, a bit, place yeah. so it wouldn't hurt you <clears throat> yeah, anymore. Uh, um, How so? Um, What happens in, you know, when you're grieving and you, and you don't really have any place to put it is you tend to take it out on yourself. And so I, I did that a bit. You know, I mean, I, I drank excessively and I, I got uh, sort of wrapped up in uh, cocaine for a while. 
and uh, didn't um, forgive myself. Really, what it came down to. And finally, I, I had a, a sort of an epiphany of, of thinking, you know, this is, you're carrying this as though you, you had something to do with it, and you got to let that go. And uh, I think it's a natural inclination. I think it's certainly a big brother always wants to protect his sister, you know, and that's just what we're trained to do, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what I always did for her when we were kids. So losing her in that way was really uh, damning to me. And uh, I responded in any number of ways for a while. I and mean, I used to walk the streets of Manhattan just hoping somebody would, like, try to do something. In dangerous weird. parts yeah, of the Yeah, dangerous parts of the, of the town. And uh, what was weird was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be approaching a situation, a, a, a few guys standing around in a corner somewhere or something in the middle of the night and thinking, oh, here's, here's a chance, you know. And um, they all usually just steered clear. And here's a chance for what? Uh, you know, maybe just I was going to be able to take something out on somebody or let some of these guys jump me or something. You know, I was, I was not in a good way at that time. But I think in a weird way, everybody kind of sensed it, thought he's not worth it. <laughs> So, you know, uh, so maybe I was just being protected, you know. Uh, but uh, then that turned into, I, suddenly I had, like, great success, things like that. And it, it, it just was a, an irony for me that, that, you know, that she was gone and taken in such a horrible way and that, that I was alive. And so I blamed myself for a long time. And then finally somebody said to me that, you know, the, usually the, the, the reason for uh, addiction and, and, and things of that nature is that, uh, in a profound way, is, is a unresolved grief. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. If you can just forgive yourself for whatever it is you're in, you don't actually need to carry all that crap anymore. <laughs> so for me, it really helped me out. How did you get to the place where you were able to do it? You know, when it turned off, it just turned off. It was just, whew. And you know, it doesn't mean now that I, would, I don't recollect Karen and uh, or even my dad and, and not still, you know, have a profound sense of grief. and even cry still, but uh, uh, that part of it has been, the charge has been removed from it. And you were there when your grandma told your mom what happened? Yeah. How, yeah. how did you help your mom in getting oh, through it? Oh, it was hard. I don't, you know, helping my mom was tough. I think she I'd never seen anybody move around a room that way when she heard her daughter was gone. And I, th I think my mom <clears throat> was a truly brave, you know, wonderful, persevering example. You know, she she just she kept it together and got through it, but always, you know, always mourned the loss of her daughter, her little girl. You know, the the boys that did it were 16, 17, well, 19 we years old. 18, 19, 20. They 18, were in the 19. army, honestly, but, you know, um, one guy was pretty creepy. He just died, actually. I was going to say, one's dead, another's up for parole, 2021. The last of them is alive. Yeah. How do you yeah. view them? Um, as people who should stay in jail. You know, uh, they were given the death penalty, actually, but then in the, I guess in the, in the 80s, was it... Uh, or maybe it was in the late 70s, the, uh, the Supreme Court overturned all death sentences uh, in America. So they were commuted to life sentences, all, all of them. And then uh, because they fell into that little niche, it gave them the right to go up for parole all the time. So they've been, uh, since Colorado has altered its law to say when life means life, 
if you're in, in jail for life, you're in jail for life. There's no parole. And that, uh, that certainly would have been easier on me. But, you know, the last decade has been spent going back to Colorado Springs to uh, ask the parole board to keep them in jail. What do you have to do? Uh, basically, you write a statement, show up, you know, speak to them, ab about them. Um, the last of them is the guy that was pretty instrumental in killing my sister. And uh, uh, I just, uh, you know, I, uh, there's a part of me that wants to be as kind to every human being as I possibly can. And, uh, but the notion of his ever going free just seems absurd. You know, they didn't kill just one person, they did it to several. And uh, we don't have that right. I mean, except in wartime, maybe. But you know, that's still, you know, that's that still usually haunts people with conscience anyway. If they had accepted responsibility and admitted wrongdoing, to what extent do you think that would have changed uh, your view? Oh, well, I think now they probably have. But uh, it's just. Uh, I mean, for the longest time, they. Yeah, didn't no, it didn't right? really. Yeah, no. It's to, to their credit, but still, you know, I, I, I didn't get a chance to meet my uh, nieces and nephews, did I? I didn't get to see her grow up, so. How do you view therapy? Uh, through a jaundiced eye. <laughs> That's the best I can say. I think therapy's fine to a point. I think it's uh, good therapy. You should, you should get over it. You know, you should get through it and say, somebody should finally say, yeah, I think we've done enough here. You're welcome to go out back into the world and move on. You know, get on with your life. Um, the, you know, in the old days, you know, you'd talk to an English person and say, therapy? Therapist? Isn't that what friends are for? You know, and you'd think, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, yeah, you've you got to have people you can touch stones in your life where you can talk things through. Uh, I certainly did do some therapy in time, and I, I think it was helpful to a point. It's nice to have that outlet for ideas, but once, I, once you learn through a certain series of coping mechanisms or whatever, how to, how to reflect on things and, and not take it all, always so personally, that's cer certainly a skill you should be able to like, master yourself. You know. So just talking about like personality, um, for a, a long time, you said you felt like you were always letting people down. Um, why? From time to time, what happens in a relationship with people is, is they start to have expectations of you that maybe are unrealistic. And uh, uh, I know that I've, I've spent time in relationships where I thought, why am I not good enough? Why, why is this not working out so well? Why, why am I suddenly being told I didn't do my job today. That sort of thing has happened to me in the past. And when I realized that um, <clears throat> I probably was okay, and maybe, maybe the issue was that they didn't want me to be okay. You know, I don't, I, I'm not really sure. And even dating back to when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I actually thought that I was letting people down, that I thought I, I just wasn't quite good enough, it didn't quite hit the mark a lot of the time. Uh, and maybe that was just out of a, a a feeling that I had to be perfect, that I, you know, that maybe maybe we all have that a little bit. Uh, I was letting myself down sometimes. Uh, I started to develop certain sort of um, small goals. I, I used to tell some of my friends, I said, say, well, you know, set a set a goal for yourself that's realistic that day, and uh, and do it. You know, make sure you get that one done. 
because then you then you won't have a sort of a tradition of, of feeling like, oh, I didn't, you know, oh, I didn't do this today, I didn't do that today. Um, but, you know, make them small. Make I'm going to I'm going to plant a window box today. You know, so make sure you do it. You know, simple things, and uh, I think that helps you kind of get a sense of uh, um, self-respect. And if something wasn't your fault, you said you had a way of. Making it making it my fault, yeah, right. Making of, of sort of engineering a, of, of, of some sort of a bizarre way into thinking oh, somehow Why? I'm responsible for that. Yeah, no, I, 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 those are the those are problems of a, a man that I am no longer that man. <laughs> you, you said you were attracted to threshold experiences, insanity. Oh, I'm still chaos, a, I'm still attracted to that. Man. I mean, you know, I think I find people fascinating who are in that you know state. Because that state's a, you know an ecstatic state, and one that's you know even if it's, if it's, if it's perilous or bad for somebody, it's still it's still attractive in a weird way. So yeah, sometimes I found people who were in sort of crisis more attractive than I would someone who was you know doing okay. Tell them about the. I'm shocked that you were open about this the tattoo that you got. Uh, for Kate. For Kate. Oh 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 no. Well that's just that's just. She said, uh, "This was this is something we actually have a kind of we both joke about." She just one time we were sitting there and she said, "Would you ever, you know, put my name on your body like this, a tattoo?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, why not?" <laughs> so we both said it should be out of sight, so it's somewhere near, you know, my, you know. <laughs> it crossed our minds it'd be funny to sort of say if I if I happened to be cheating, someone would say, you know, oh, you know, property of. Uh, but also, or it could be, you know, uh, with compliments. You know, <laughs> your hostess this evening. You know, <laughs> courtesy of Kate. <laughs> um, all right, so married uh, four times. Um, what do you think you learned from past relationships that's helped well, you as you've grown as a person? In terms of the, the it, I, I like to think of that married three times, basically, uh, was once. Because that was the same person in different bodies. There was a pattern that I fall, fell into where people that somehow I thought I, I, could, I could help them, their life be better, you know, help them, them uh, come to another place somehow. And then I realized it wasn't my business. And when I finally stopped doing that, I, uh, and, and realized that, you know, people had to just love me for who I was and, and maybe be a partner and maybe, you know, even like me, you know, this was, that, that's where some of that other stuff what, maybe came What in. was that person though, um, that you were uh, attracted to? Uh, I, think, I think some of it had to do with always picking people that you could never satisfy. Maybe, that was, maybe that's some of what I was talking about before. Uh, in terms of uh, Kate's the most mature person I've ever been with. She happens to be younger than anybody else I've ever been with in terms of a, a fully committed relationship. Uh, but uh, the others were, uh, they were part of the step. But uh, there were three women that were very similar. And the, the issue was the same issue. And, and, uh, and, and abusive I, I like to think too, right? Uh, yeah, well, one, certainly, very abusive. But I, I like to think of the, the lesson being, uh, I finally realized that wasn't what I wanted. You know, it just took me three times to figure it out. Why, when you were in the abuse, did you tolerate it? That's an interesting question. Um, and, and this is those, like... Those people who are abused, I was physically abused in, in my second black marriage. Guy, yeah, right. Black guy, glass broken on you, gunfire at you, yeah. life-threatened. Crazy yeah. stuff. Um, 
there, it, once it happens, this is what this is a, apparently some sort of a this is a kind of a, a syndrome, I guess, or something that's identifiable with people who've been abused. You just kind of assume it's your fault, and that you accept it, and that you'll be able to fix it next time. Uh, and you just can't. You know, but it takes a while to figure that out, though. It takes a while to say, "This is not my fault. I'm not responsible for this behavior. That person's responsible for it, and I got to get out of here." That takes a while. And not speaking to any relationships specifically, but when was a point for you that it just clicked that, you know, this uh, this is not for me? I've had some good days on this. Uh, my previous marriage, and you know, honestly, I don't really talk about her very much um, uh, because, you know, so much of her life is spent talking about me. I just think it's it's, it's sort of pathetic. And uh, um, but I, I will I will. Acknowledged one day uh, after I'd had my heart attack. A month after I had a heart attack, my mo my mother died, and uh, it's uh, 12 years ago now. And uh, the day of my mother's funeral, my previous, uh, my third wife, uh, basically had an explosion about something, and. Uh, and started to tell me, oh, you know, I'm out of this, I'm out of here, again, you know, I want I wanted a divorce, blah, 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 blah. Which we'd had the same conversation for, you know, eight years. And it was tiresome. And I, I realized on that, at that moment that I was done with her, that that was not, I was not gonna end up in this relationship for much longer. And so somewhere under a year I was done, so. Uh, Kate, who you love dearly, your mm -hmm. current wife, uh, 25 years, your junior. My junior, yes. Uh, 26, actually. 26. Uh, <laughs> what's, I mean, just from an age perspective, the, the biggest difference you've noticed in... The only thing that I, would, that I would notice actually is just maybe a little bit more perspective, but uh, Kate's a wise girl. She's a knowledgeable person. She's self-aware. She's, a, she's a, a whole human who was willing to, like, one of my favorite expressions about uh, marriage, to lay her solitude beside my own. And... Uh, so we are two individuals who have become a third identity. You know, we've assumed another identity together, which is us together, and that's a very cool thing. And she's a, a complete human being, and beautiful in, in all the you know classic ways, but also um, um, humorous, funny, challenging. I mean, when we were together, you know, to, she, when we first got together, she said to me. There was just suddenly a moment where she thought, oh my God, I want to have kids with you. <laughs> and that, uh, she said it sort of surprised her, but she said her grandmother had told her years before that she said, you'll know the man you want to marry when you realize you want to have children with him. And I thought, oh wow. So that's, that was really cool. And, and I'd had visions of, another, of more children in my life anyway. And um, other than that, other than the fact that I, uh, I don't run as fast as I used to, uh, uh, I don't feel any age difference between us. Uh, there's, you know, there's the, there's the sort of empirical, oh yeah, this number is this number, that number is that number that you just can't ignore sometimes, and there's a certain kind of inevitability about the fact that well, this one means this, and this, and. Sure. There are certain circumstances or um, consequences of, of us being together that uh, we'll have to face at some point. But uh, as it stands now, uh, 
I feel like we are equals and, uh, and really well matched. How many kids do you have? We have three. I have seven. <laughs> but uh, we're talking about a couple more. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, I love I That, love, that is love a whole lot of kids. That's a good, that's a good chunk of kids. Um, uh, why more? Because uh, it's, 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 it's a, what is that? It's, it's an uplifting experience. It's, it's a joyous experience for me. These new human beings that come into your life, these, these children that are your charge, you know, in many ways, but they're also your, your uh, tutors, you know, they, they teach you so much about life, remind you so much about life. The simple, the simple beauty of life all the time is evident in watching your children grow up. And so the closer I am to that, the happier I am. How would you describe what you think you're like as a father? I think I'm a good father. <laughs> um, I think I'm fair and sometimes a little scary. And um, how, how are you scary? Well, I think, uh, I think I think you need to be able to have the voice that stops a child in its tracks. <laughs> you know, like if, I mean, you, if you have a kid that's running out into the street, you hope that you've established in them something that says, "Oh, that's the voice. I better just stop." <laughs> there it is. There are consequences to that that might be not good. Uh, so somebody has to, you know, administer justice in the household. There has to be a hierarchy and an understanding, and you try to be good to your kids and explain things. And but there are some things that you just need to point to and say, "Look, this is this is a bad idea," and and you know, and uh, to take my word for it, uh, that goes pretty well. How do you think your upbringing impacted you as a father? Well, like I said, I, I had no examples of fatherhood, except I, had, I did have Gordon to a point, you know, and so I, up, up to there I was pretty good, you know, telling the truth, try to be decent to all people. Those are, those are good things, to be respectful of all people and, and to uh, be a gentleman, you know, I mean, as, as a man and be a young lady. I mean, I think those are still terms that can be uh, uh, applied in our society and, ex and an expectation of good behavior. What is, you know, it's like how to be decent to people. You just, you know, allow everybody their space and to, and to, and to, as, as Emerson said, you know, say their name with his, with all the honors any king or queen would ever be given, you know, to, to be respectful of people and then to find them. I find all people fascinating and interesting and deserving of that kind of attention. And then, uh, you know, there are certain corners you shouldn't stop on. There are certain people that will prove to you that, you know, you've gotten as, as much from them as you can in a, in a short span of time, and you do not need to stay there. Uh, you, you mentioned your, your first uh, child now in uh, her 30s. Right. Um, how do you think you've evolved as a, a dad from when well, you first you know, had a kid It's funny, I think I was today. a pretty good dad to her. I mean, just, you know, she was the first that, uh, Spencer, my daughter Spencer, um, uh, she was the first one, right? So I, I guess I cut my teeth on her a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I was uh, always, uh, I, with her, I was with her all the time when she was younger. Uh, when I uh, had my second wife, uh, we spent a little more time apart and I'm not sure that that was helpful. Uh, you know, you come back around, you, you have enough time, you know, um, you get to restore all the sense of love and, and um, intimacy that can be there between a father and a daughter, especially, and uh, I think that's all there now. May 31st, 2008. 
the heart attack. Right. Um, take me through what happened from the moment you first started feeling bad. Well, this is this is a kind of a an athletic story. <laughs> uh, I uh, was to stand up paddling that day. We did a couple of miles. Uh, went uh, down to a little beach just south of where there was uh, a home that I owned, and. Uh, they, they, they did this thing as well. You, you know, you go pick up a big rock off the bottom of the seafloor and walk with it for a while underwater, hold your breath. So I did that about five or six times. And then we got back on the boards and paddled back up. And uh, that's when I felt a little dizzy and, uh, and um, stepped onto the beach and, and, and thought oh, well, I'd better just sit down. Then I threw up. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a little funny. And I said, well, let's go and get some food. So I, that's when I stood up, and that's when I felt the crushing uh, pressure in my chest. And, uh, and what are you thinking at the time? Well, I, I started thinking, I guess maybe that's a heart attack. And uh, so I sat down, I tried to breathe deeply, and it felt really, really painful. I waited for an hour and a half before the emergency guys got there. It was too bad, because it it's Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii. and. Uh, Getting an ambulance there is tough. I think maybe they've gotten a helicopter by now for such uh, such situations. But so a lot of not not a, uh, some damage was done to my heart uh, during that t that time. Finally, they gave me what uh, when I finally got to the emergency room, they gave me what they call the clot buster, uh, and that was one of the interesting experiences. They said, "Well, you've you've got some sort of clot. Something's you know obstructing the f flow of blood through your heart and." Uh, they said, there are side effects. I said, what are those? And she said, well, death. <laughs> I said, okay, thank you. Go, do it. And uh, so they, they did it, and then, um, and then they pop you, and then they bring you back. And so I, I was breathing on my own after the second pop, and, and, and uh, when, everything sort of back on track. When was the point in which you weren't present any, anymore? Um, it was very brief. You know, there was a brief moment of when, when I said, it was just before the the shot, I you know, sort of said to the, the, the gods that be or whatever, you know, the, or the, 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 the lesser angels, whatever. Uh, I said, don't show me anything. I don't want to see a thing. I'm not interested in any tunnels or any light. I have things I have to do here still. And uh, I'll, I'll digress for a second. I'd gotten to the point in my marriage at that time. The unhappiness was so profound that I actually started to think the only way I can solve this for them is to not be here. Really? Yeah, and so I started to believe that the best course of, for my life was to not be alive and that they'd be happier. Why would you feel ah, that? Ah, just, you know, look, some people get you to a certain place. <laughs> That's all I'll say about it. Um, in that moment when I said, okay, I take it all back, is what I was basically saying to the, to the little angels. I was saying, I didn't really mean it. I, you know what, I know there's something else to live for, and uh, I want to get to that. But it wasn't until that moment that you yeah. really had that I, I revelation. A, a profound plea for another shot at this, yeah, right? And uh, I guess they heard me and how said, much, okay. How much damage ended up getting done to your heart? Well, you know what, I, th I think I've, I've reversed a lot of it by now, because okay. I've been working out pretty hard ever since then, and, uh, and I've done some, some things that uh, enhance your blood flow. And uh, I feel pretty strong. Um, post Frasier, um, we were taping an episode uh, with John Hamm not too long mm -hmm. ago of Mad Men fame. And I asked him, you know, how do you recapture the high of being TV's leading man? And he laughed and he's like, you don't. 
No, um, how similar an experience was that transition for you? Yeah. Uh, well, Fraser was a, a, a giant uh, accomplishment, you know, honestly. Um, actors get wary about, you know, successful uh, characters because then they kind of like take away your right to play other ones. Uh, but that hasn't been the case with me. I mean, th there's a bit of a, you know, he's still sort of there in my life always, Frazier. I mean, because he's um, a great character. Uh, so I'm remembered for him. Uh, but recently I've been playing a lot of different roles and I'm having a really great time at it. And so, and that's what I always wanted to be, was just an actor that played different characters. So that's happened. How did the level of satisfaction that you got from the roles and, and parts post Frasier compared to maybe what you would have uh, been expecting? Right. Uh, Frasier was so good. You know, it was just, it was a great performance and, and, and great writing and all, all the things you needed to have it become great. Uh, I've, I've experienced that since. Um, and so uh, I haven't been cursed by it, you know, in a, in a weird way. It's, it's been great. Uh, it's just like when the first time you do it, you know, the very first time I did a role where I, I went, wow, that, that felt like truth. Just, you know, and that's, that's what we get off on, I think. Uh, it's like you get to sort of touch human truth through a performance, you know? I mean, somebody said, it describes great art as a true lie. That's, it's, it's a very simple set of words, you know, a true lie. Uh, that's exactly what it is. I mean, we are, we're not telling the truth, but we are conveying truth, <laughs> you know, with a mask. And it, it's, it's, it's a great way to make a living. The Simpsons, uh, the voice of Sideshow Well, there, there's a great Sideshow truth Bob. in the inside of Bob. Uh, yeah. What does that entail? Uh, Sideshow Bob is a, is, a, is a character based upon a person I knew. His name was Ellis Rabb. And uh, I've, I've said this before in you know, many, many instances, but uh, Ellis was a colorful, flamboyant man that I knew that I did some work for years before, and he would say the most wonderful things. Ooh, Kelsey, you know, things like that. Today I am, you know, and uh, I, I thought, God, this guy, I gotta use him somewhere. And, uh, the occasion arose with uh, Sideshow Bob. So Sideshow Bob is Ellis Rabb, my version of Ellis Rabb. How did The Simpsons come about? Uh, Sam Simon uh, had been a writer on uh, Cheers. And then he, he, he took off and started doing the Tracy Ullman show. And then within that, they came up with, with Matt Granning, the, the little itchy and scratchy thing. And then it turned into the sort of The Simpsons character, the Bart and everything. And he called me like in the second season of the Simpsons and said, I used to sing a lot uh, on the on the set of uh, Cheers. I used to always sing, oh, the good life. And uh, he asked me if I was still doing that. And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, can you sing a, a Cole Porter song? And I said, of course I can. And so I said, well, we've got this character. Side so Bob who loves Cole Porter, <laughs> who uh, has never spoken a word. and. Uh, we finally thought he should speak. He's uh, Krusty the Crown's sidekick, and uh, um, we want you to do it. So I said, yeah, can I? And that's when I thought, oh, it's, it's Ellis, and uh, uh, did my Ellis Rav impression, and, and, and sang, uh, what is it? Every time we say goodbye, I cry a little. Every time we say goodbye, I wonder why a little. Um, a wonderful song and uh, Sideshow was born. Um, the Frasier reboot, 
uh, yes. the new uh, Frasier. The new um, Frasier. Um, what, what's the plan for that? Well, we're we're in the midst of talking about. Uh, we've got it hatched. We've hatched the plan. What we think is the right way to go. Uh, we're sort of on standby a little bit, working out on uh, a couple of possible network deals that we're circling. Okay. And uh, Frasier is sort of in a second position to that at this point. Uh, so, you know, there's still stuff going on. Uh, but a, a revisit to Frasier and Frasier's world is, is I think, uh, definitely going to come. Uh, we'll see, uh, you know, how people respond to it because it's not going to be the same place. It's not going to be Seattle. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be the same Frasier. It's going to be, uh, you know, the man in his next iteration. And hopefully that'll be something people like watching, but I think it'll be funny. Without revealing too many details, uh, what will it be about? Oh, well, you know, it's it's still his search for love, for one thing. You know, I think that'll always go on with Frazier. Uh, but uh, a connection with his son. When do you think it starts? Mm. Spring. Okay. Yeah. When, when do you think uh, airtime? Uh, people can... Probably late, late summer next year. Late summer next yeah, year? I, oh, I would so guess. That's maybe, quick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's... It's ready to go. We just got to sort of staff it and uh, find somebody who wants to give us money for it. <laughs> I mean, that's probably not that difficult. Oh, who knows? To... You know, you never know. I mean, you know, the, the business is funny. It's a funny world. But uh, I think there's a couple of outlets that would actually be interested in in, uh, in revisiting it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You initially said you could not see yourself playing Frasier again. Right. What changed? Well, uh, it, it, part of it was the Roseanne revival, so the things that kind of, kind of like kicked again. And then, then when they were doing things like when Murphy Brown came back, and I, I don't know how, and, and when Will and Grace came back, I thought, well, it would be worth it. I, 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 I've always wanted to be uh, honest. Yeah, you know, like uh, uh, I didn't think Frazier should be in exactly the same place as he was uh, 12 years ago. You know, so we've we've changed that. <laughs> what was appealing to you? About um, it? Just the idea that there might be another act in his life, because certainly his life is. I mean, people used to ask, "Could you have done it for more time?" And they say, "Well, yeah. I mean, you know, because life is always, always surprising. You know, people go on. You know, yeah. You get up the next day, and it's a different life, isn't it?" Um, and so I thought you could always tell stories about that. We just ended it because that's where, oh, contracts were up and 11 seasons seemed like the right kind of amount of time for it to be uh, on the air. And so we ended it um, on a high and what we thought was a, you know, a, a, good, a good story point to end on and, and, and a hopeful stepping off place. All those things were, were enough to propel him into a new kind of life. And so this new idea would be based upon the fact that he was still, you know, alive and still trying things and still embarked on, a, on an adventure. I, th I mean, I, th I think that ideally that would be how it would work out. What always gives you an optimistic outlook? I believe in people. I believe that people are basically good. I believe that people have a certain series of flaws and, uh, and self-serving uh, nature that um, make it possible for them to make bad choices. But I, I do believe in the virtuous, in human beings. I believe we actually share that as, as powerfully as we share the, the shortcomings. And uh, when we are in best form, we choose the right thing, even though it's a, it, it often means sacrifice and it often means uh, taking less for ourselves. It does mean that we, uh, we care enough about the human experience 
So our, our, our families, our communities, everything else, I think are best left alone. And I, I don't believe that the United States government should interfere in that. And I don't think the um, Constitution would disagree with that. I think that's what they tried to put in place, was a place where individuals had as much say as they possibly could. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kelsey Grammer. To catch more of our interview, including a tour of his 500-acre property and his brewing facility, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, we appreciate when you rate and review the show. Thanks again for listening.